Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Store. This is a podcast for Southeast Utah. I'm your host, Oren Stainbrook, and my guest today is Micah Salas, who is the superintendent of Carbon School District. Thanks for talking with me today, Micah. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. So first, just want to talk about your personal history and background. Uh, where'd you grow up? How long have you been in Carbon County? And tell us about your journey that led you to becoming the school superintendent. Okay, uh, so yes, I'm a, I'm a helper kid. I'm a local local kid. I grew up in helper and went to Sally Morrow, helper junior high, carbon high. I uh, had the same friends from kindergarten through graduation. Lucky enough that in a small town I got to have that experience. Met my husband when I was in fifth grade, and so just local, local kid. Uh, so my journey into education really uh, was accidental. I uh, loved drafting in high school. I really didn't know what I wanted to do ever, um, but I, I was introduced to drafting from a, from Bevan Young, who is my teacher at Carbon High, and um, I guess. Before that, I need to say that I was someone who needed school to be more than school. I won't get into the details, but we had some rough things we had to deal with when I was a kid. And so I needed school to be the place where I could really be provided opportunities and um, have teachers who cared about me enough to maybe see things in myself that I, I couldn't see, see things in me that I couldn't see in myself. And I had that. I really loved school and I had some fantastic teachers. and parents, friends, and a whole community of people. Helper Helper was a wonderful place to grow up for that reason, too. But when I was in high school, I walked down the hall uh, on the way to the lunchroom, actually, and saw the drafting lab, and for some reason, I was pulled into that. I, I didn't know what it was, but I knew I had to do it, if that makes any sense. And it was back in the day, it was a long time ago, so it was the board drafting, had the the big tables and the arms, you know, that um, maybe you're, maybe you're too young. I don't know, but the arm that reached out, it was all board drafting. So I needed to do it. I didn't know why, but I needed to do it. And anyway, I signed up. Bevan Young was amazing. He um, really honed a talent with me and I just loved it. And I wanted to do that for a living. And so uh, as I took every drafting class I could in high school and then, um, they were just starting to choose AutoCAD. I'm really dating myself and everyone in that class because some of us uh, still you know, stay in touch. But uh, AutoCAD was just coming out, and it was still DOS-based. It was all the old, old system. But they allowed us go, to go to Carbon or to uh, CEU, College of Eastern Utah. It's now USU Eastern, but it was at the time College of Eastern Utah. And they let us take classes there during the day, and it was amazing. And I, uh, I loved it. And... So when, I, when it was time to graduate and leave, I just wanted to be a drafter. And so the only program available was at Utah State in Logan. So I moved up there uh, my freshman year of college and was a drafting major, but it was an associate program. And uh, again, there were just wonderful people up there who really just helped me a lot. And so um, one of my professors up there, Dr. Jay Hicken, was uh, kind of pinned me down one day and said, what do you want to do? <laughs> like, you can do this, but what do you want to do long-term? And I didn't really know. And, and he said, I think you should stay and get your, your bachelor's. Well, the drafting associate program was under the Department of, uh, of Technical Education. And uh, so industrial teacher education is technically what it was called. And so he said, you know, you're halfway there with this drafting program. You should just stay and get your bachelor's. 
And I was like, okay, well, I'm having fun in college, you know, and I, I can do that. So I got my teaching degree accidentally. Uh, but I worked the whole time as a drafter. I worked for Thiokol Corporation. I worked for, I worked as a drafting aide. They let me double dip that, which was very important to me at the time. Um, I probably wouldn't have been able to afford to stay had that not worked out just how it did. So it was, it was really great. And then um, I did. I finished and still didn't even put into a lot of, uh, I guess, faith in myself that I was even going to be a teacher. It just That's the program I was in. I did my student teaching and realized, okay, this is this is what it's going to be. And I, I loved the kids and loved the whole school environment. I always loved school, so it was a pretty natural fit for me to be a teacher. So I, my first year, I was in Davis School District um, and uh, was hired as this basically a shop teacher is what I was trained to do. It, it, you know, that's that's what the program was. It was basically old school shop. We had welding and woodworking and machining and all of, all of that. Uh, but I really didn't have the experience I needed in industry to do that, just the drafting. So when I got my first job, they said, well, we really need a math teacher. All right, how comfortable are you with math? You can do half tech ed and then you can do half math. I said, well, I love math. I'll, I'll do math. So I did that. And then anyway, we, we got engaged that year and my husband was um, working with the Highway Patrol down in Green River. So we ended up moving down there, and I couldn't get a teaching job down in Green River. And so I ended up working for the Southeast Education Service Center as a technology trainer and did that for three years and covered Grand Emory, Carbon, and San Juan County. So I drove about 1,000 miles a week and did technology training for teachers. But that was actually really great because I got in all kinds of districts, all kinds of schools, and really fell in love with just the whole the needs, the challenges. I wanted to really be there for teachers. And then we decided to um, start our family. And so we moved back to Carbon County. And it just so happened there was a job at Helper Junior High, my old school. And um, I applied and, and got that job. So I was a math teacher primarily. I did have some tech ed, but primarily math teacher at Helper for eight years. And just loved it. Just absolutely loved it. Um, but I, I loved it, but I could see that there were some challenges in our school that I didn't, I didn't think we were necessarily meeting the needs that were there. I didn't have the answers, but I knew there was a problem or a series of problems that I thought I could maybe help with. So I uh, went back to school and got my admin uh, master's. And in that process, I was also asked to become the district math specialist. So those three years, I uh, I was at the district office, but I was responsible for K-12 math, uh, uh, you know, to help helping teachers teach math. And that was very valuable for me because that's the first time I really got in elementary as a non-student to see what, what happens in the elementary school. And it was just so impressive. Really, just the teachers everywhere, every level are so impressive. So it was great. It was a great experience. And then um, and then I was hired at Helper Junior High. Again, just happened again where there was an, um, an opening for principal. And I was there for five years as the principal. And again, just absolutely loved it. It's a, it, it, I try not to be biased in this job. I love all of our schools. All of our schools are wonderful and have great people, fantastic people. But Helper does just have that, you know, it's just a special place for me. But anyway, I did that for five years. And and we were able to make some huge improvements 
and we were able to go from basically a failing school to the what the state recognizes an A school, and, and it was just because of the absolute myopic focus of our staff to just do the right thing for kids. It was just awesome. It was huge, great to be a part of it. It was just wonderful. I just can't express the the time there. It was just wonderful. But then we had an opening in the district office, and I I was asked to come up to that, and I didn't want to leave. But again, I felt like there are some things, you know, and could we, could we make a, dist a, a difference district-wide? I saw it happen firsthand in the school, but I was really drawn to the idea that maybe we could have the same impact district-wide. So I took the job as secondary director and did that for, I think, three years. I don't count. My years are off now. I about three years. Um, and then our superintendent decided to leave, and that job came open, and I didn't want it. I, I didn't. I, this isn't where my, you know, the, the school is where my heart is. And so even being at the district office for those years was just hard for me, but this this job of superintendent wasn't ever anything I even ever wanted. I didn't want it even really while I was applying for it. I really didn't want to do it. But by the same token, I felt like if I don't put myself in as part of a solution, potentially, I can't complain about things. I can't, what am I going to say? I don't like that. Well, I had a chance to maybe fix it or at least help come up with ideas that could potentially make a difference. So I didn't feel like it was, I didn't feel like I could do that. So... So I applied, and then so here we are. This is my third year. So basically, I feel like my whole career has been accidental, but it has also been just wonderful. So that's how it happened. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for telling me all that. Yeah, I can relate to your story in a lot of ways. And uh, the last thing you said too, just feeling the need to to step up and take some sort of action because you're, you know seeing the, the problems and things that you'd want to you wish were, were addressed and fixed and realizing that you have no excuse for why that can't be you doing that job mm -hmm. um, but uh, I too yeah can relate to a lot of your story of how you started in school just feeling like school needed to be more than school sure. because uh, you know we just lacking some things at home for me sure. it was just divorced parents and like at there were years where neither of my parents were really around very much and I was struggling with depression and mental health and it was just a couple of key teachers that really intervened and, and set me on a productive path that looking back I feel like you know this is something I was going to talk about later but you'd mentioned that in retrospect often the most impactful things to a person's life are just conversations yes. and there were a few key educators who had a massive impact on my life just through something seemingly inconsequential at the time. It was just these basic conversations and them identifying my strengths for me and suggesting things that I might try. Um, I, I also took a, a drafting class in high school that really uh, was a, you know, made me realize I had a passion for drawing. Yeah. And uh, I didn't pursue that right away in college, but I eventually came around to architecture was the, the thing that I finished with my degree. But, uh, it was the first, after the first uh, year or so in, in university where I was feeling like I just had no idea what I was doing, yeah. didn't feel prepared. I didn't feel like I had uh, had the best high school experience still in terms of some things like didn't know how to write a research paper, really. Um, 
So didn't have a good first year at, at university and decided I just needed to take a break and go kind of find myself a little bit. So uh, I'd heard that you know, there's a few countries where you could teach English without a bachelor's degree in China and Thailand and maybe a few others. But mm -hmm. at 19, I went to Thailand and that was my first teaching job, which I so kind of happened accidentally. I was really just looking for an adventure and some way that I could afford to travel. Uh, but I really enjoyed the teaching and have done a lot of teaching jobs since then. Uh, when I was in architecture school, I uh, got hooked up with a student group called Student Leaders for Service. And the, the point of it was to just link students with volunteer service opportunities. And they said, hey, we've got this alternative high school. It's called Portland Youth Builders in Portland, Oregon. And they need, a, they need an instructor to teach a class on building construction and carpentry. And, and I was like, all right, well, I've taught English. And I sort of know like how buildings are built. So yeah. And uh, again, it's just, you know, I kind of like fell into it. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And that just led me to more and more opportunities in education. So yeah, I feel like we have a lot in common. I, I do too. And it's, I think things are put in your path for a reason. And whether you take the opportunity or not, I guess, is up to you, but up to all of us. But I do think that one thing we could all do better is really see things as opportunities, even if they look hard or we're not quite sure. I think it's easier to not do it a lot of times, but I think we should. As long as it's not harmful to others, I, th I think we should. Mm -hmm. I think we should jump on it and just see because no one knows what they're doing. I've actually learned that. that. I guess I always thought that people, everybody but me knew what they were doing. So I was the only one that was really questioning myself or didn't know. It seemed like everybody else knew exactly where they were going and exactly what they were doing. And I think with some maturity and life lessons or whatever you want to say, I've learned that really none of us have the answer. Everyone is really just kind of trying to figure it out. And as long as we're doing the best we can and trying to do better each day, I, I think that really is the trick. And for people to just take advantage of those opportunities because you never know. I mean, and if you hadn't have done some of those things and that, who knows, like they, they enhanced your life, you know, and it's, that's our biggest thing I think with students is don't be afraid of hard things. Like my cousin actually always says, choose your hard. You know, that's our, that's what life is, is choosing your hard. Life's hard. That's just the fact. So choose your hard. Yeah, going to school is hard or starting a new career is hard or putting yourself out there is hard, but the alternative is hard as well. Not having money is terribly hard and it brings on a whole lot of other things that are hard. So don't be afraid of hard. You've got hard. That's that's inherent. So you just have to choose your heart and, and then those things as you as you grow with those, it pays off. Huge, huge. More than you could have ever imagined. Yeah. Yeah, I remember it took me eight years to finish my bachelor's degree. And there were several points in those eight years where I just felt like so defeated and like I wanted to quit and I didn't know what I was doing. And, but the thing that kept me going was just feeling like, cause it always felt like, oh, there's, I still have so much left to do and, you know, struggling at, without, uh, you know, enough of money to really, you know, feed yourself sure. adequately. And, and uh, the thing that kept me going was just realizing, well, the time is going to pass no matter what. So in four years, I could either have like 
this completed this and have this degree, or I could still be just in the same place and kind of, you know, struggling to to get to a, a better place in my life. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. All right, I want to establish a little bit more context for uh, just making sense of what the the school district entails. You explained at a talk you gave recently that I attended that within the Carbon School District there are 3,350 students and 220 certified staff and 500 classified staff. Uh, what what are classified staff, by the way? So those are hourly employees. So we divide our employees by certified, meaning you have to have some sort of degree to hold your position. There's requirements with licensing to the state, and those are certified positions, licensed positions, and we have to be super careful about that, the licensing and maintaining those uh, accurate records, making sure our certified staff have everything they need to maintain all of their licensing and the credentials to, to be in the position they're in. Classified staff are considered uh, non-licensed. They uh, might have their own, or they do have their own qualifications. Like our bus drivers have to have certain qualifications to be a bus driver, and our tech department has to have certain certificates. You know, our business department has to have things, but they're not necessarily required degrees or licensing through the state. And so that's just how we've, it's just basically the hourly employees who aren't necessarily required to have certain degrees or licenses to the state. And so they're not salaried. That's the bigger difference as well. Our, our class, or our certified staff, excuse me, is that salaried employee and our classified are hourly. Okay. That's a lot more staff than I, I would have guessed it takes to run a school district. <laughs> but uh, how many schools are within the district total between the elementary, yep. middle school, junior high, high school? Uh, yes, we have five elementaries. Uh, Bruin is out in East Carbon. We have Wellington Elementary, obviously in Wellington, Sally Morrow and Helper, and then we have two elementaries in Prize, Creekview and Castle Heights. We also have an, our Castle Valley Center. So that is a school for students who are profoundly or severely disabled. Uh, and then we have that, that either um, can't be served as well as we could in, in the regular setting. So they're in Castle Valley Center where they can receive really intensive special services uh, to meet their needs and their disability. And then we have two middle schools. We have Helper Middle School and Mount Harmon, and then one high school, Carbon High School. You've been working in schools for many years. What are, in general, the biggest changes that you've seen in that time? and I kind of want to start before we talk about challenges and mm -hmm. problems that are ongoing. Really, just take some time to acknowledge the gains and successes because, you know, I feel like there's we always have this tendency to just stay focused on well, what's wrong now without taking a look back to see how far we've come. And I and I would imagine that a lot of progress has been made and just through through your work as an educator, a principal, and now a superintendent you yourself have helped to usher in a lot of progress and positive change. So what have been the, the biggest changes that you've seen over the course of your career? Oh, man, so many things. And you're right. We do focus sometimes on the negative or the challenges, but there are so many good things. And uh, specifically with Carbon School District over, you know, the last, well, I've been there. So this is my 26th year. So, yeah, it's been a long time. And I think the... Um, 
one of the great things that Carbon School District did years ago, more than 20 years ago, was put in full day kindergarten. Uh, it's not required by the state. It's now, there's been a big push. In fact, just last year, it was legislated that we could, they actually changed the funding uh, for us so that kindergarten students here here all day will receive one full student's worth of money from the state. Before that, it was only half uh, because they only required half a day for kindergarten. And so even though we chose to have full day kindergarten decades ago, uh, we were not funded for it. We just had to invest in it. So that was something that we've done though. We've had it forever. I don't know the year, it's been over 20 years though that we've had full day kindergarten. That's a huge deal. Uh, but I think more as far as like instruction and what we're able to do for students in school, uh, I think all of us can tell stories about maybe, you know, maybe needs weren't met or, or we, if, if you didn't get it, that's just too bad. Like if the teacher said it, then that was enough. And, and there wasn't really um, help for a lot of students who maybe needed another look at it, another chance. And uh, really, it's been, again, about 20 years, but there was a big change in education called PLCs, so uh, professional learning communities, where um, really spearheaded by the DeFores, Rick DeFore and his wife, that were educators, that they really, they really kind of literally wrote the book. I mean, we have the book, but it's, uh, it's really looking at collaboration with teachers. You know, doctors do it. Uh, medical staff does it, where they come together and discuss things. They'll bring, you know, issues that patients are having, and they say, well, we probably should put more eyes on this. We need to make sure we're doing the right thing. And teachers, we were in silos. We were isolated. We would shut our door, and we would just do our thing in our own classroom. And I, and I don't, there was never ill intent. I, or there, I'm not saying that we were bad back then. We, we still wanted the best for the kids. We just, we didn't see another way to do it. So that was what we did. And you just did what you saw as a student and you just kind of repeated that as a teacher and we all just kind of did our own thing and we were also very reluctant to share scores with each other because what if my kids didn't score as well as yours now you're going to think I'm a substandard teacher rather than looking at it like how can we help like obviously something's wrong and really dissecting that and looking at what what that is so that the PLC movement um, and it's got varying levels of effectiveness depending on the principal, but that was a huge thing for us. Uh, and it took us a while to get good at it. And we're still, obviously it's a work in progress always, but there's really kind of four main parts to it. And, and it seems so simple, but really, what is it that you want the kids to know? Sounds simple, right? But when you really get into that, there's the, the core that we, the standards we have to teach are so, um, broad and there's so many of them. So for instance, when I was teaching seventh grade pre-algebra, we had 74 concepts to cover in a year. Well, there's 180 days of school and they're really not though, because the first few days you're just getting back into the routine. Uh, there's things like this week, Christmas break, you're on a shortened week, Thanksgiving, you have a shortened week, or the, in May, the last week of school, you've got all your field trips and your things. So now you're kind of chopping off days at both ends and in the middle. So you really don't have 180 days. You really have, you know, maybe 170 days of instruction. Well, that's not counting the scoliosis screening, the vision screening, the basketball season, the whatever. 
and you've you've just you're losing your kids all the time to all these other things that aren't what you're really needing to be do needing to do which is from my um, case teaching math so I basically would have to go to a new concept every other day if I was going to teach that entire list of standards and that's you can teach that you can say words for those two days till you move on to the next topic but it does not mean the kids are learning that it just means you've said it and so what PLCs have done and what focusing on that has done is said, okay, we're not going to be able to teach 74 concepts well to anyone. So could we teach 20? Could we teach five in absolute depth and guarantee mastery on those five? And then look at 20 really well. And then maybe the 30th is nice to have if we can get to it. And that's just the reality of it. You cannot do a good job, a great job uh, with that many concepts. And we've studied other countries. Uh, other countries have far less in a year to cover, but they really go in depth. And there's all kinds of theories about why that is and, and if that's the only factor. So we're not quite there yet in America where we're going to be willing to cut down the number of concepts per year per grade. But I do think work is always being done to help um, put things in the right order uh, or align things a little bit better. And PLCs allow us to do that, allows us to compare. Of all those standards we have to teach, what are the most critical, the absolute most critical these kids need to have for them to be successful? And then what are the really important concepts that we would really want to make sure they also master before the end of the year? And then what are the nice to have, what would be great if we have a class that just kind of cooks along and does really well, we could we could get there. So that's been a huge improvement to really not just blow over topics, but really understand how much our kids are learning. Another great thing that we've done is provide interventions for students. Um, it it really helps to um, take in, uh, students learning and kind of we divide it into basically three pots. You have tier one, that's which everybody gets. Everybody gets initial instruction. Everybody gets explicit instruction. Everybody gets uh, small group work and partner and all the stuff we can do in, a, in an instructional setting to help kids learn. But there's going to be some who don't learn that. They're just, for whatever reason, they're just, they just didn't get it yet. And so if it's a grade level skill, but they're just not quite there yet, we have tier two intervention. So it's taking less than 20% of our students because if you're not at least 80% mastery in tier one, you have a tier one problem, you have an instructional problem, a teacher problem basically. That's not the students. If you are if you have a class and you know 50% of the kids didn't get it, that's not a them problem, that's a that's an us problem. But if we can get most of the kids, 80% or more there, then we can pull those others in tier two intervention and really help them in their grade level skill and get most of them there. If there's still some that need more we start to dive into, is it skill or will? So is this something that they're just, they have a skill deficit, maybe a prerequisite skill deficit, um, or maybe it's a, a will problem. Maybe they don't wanna do it. Maybe there's something they're struggling with. Maybe they're just, they, they don't like it, or they don't like the teacher, or they don't like whatever. Um, or something's going on in their life, and they're just, they're not able, cognitively able to to really do that yet because their basic needs aren't being met. And so we really try to diagnose all that as teachers and figure out 
why is this not working and what can we do about it? And we're doing that better than we ever have. And, uh, and then of course I, I feel like, or tier three, where we're, where we're actually teaching kids their basic skills. We're teaching reading past just primary grades. If we have a fifth grader, an eighth grader that can't read, high school student that can't read, we're doing better to teach them how to read and not just passing them on and giving them coping skills um, because we don't want adults who can't read it. It limits their financial prospects or trajectory in their work, their safety even. I mean, it's just, it's a huge, huge deficit for someone who can't read. And so we want to do everything we can to stop that. And I think the other, the other thing we do really well now that maybe we didn't do as well before is look at the needs of kind of the whole student. Um, if they're hungry, we just feed them. Like if we have, I know we're gonna get, get to this later, but we have food pantries in every school and, and it's, not a, it's not a condescension. It's not to say these kids can't afford it so we're handing them a granola bar. We're saying you had cheer practice at 5.30 in the morning and you had to hurry and get ready for school and so if you need a granola bar, come get one. You know, it's not judgment on anyone. It's not, oh, your family can't afford it or you, whatever. Maybe they were running out of the house and forgot their lunch. Or maybe they just, maybe they're just hungry. <laughs> you know, maybe they're growing, they're growing, they're, maybe they did have breakfast, but man, they just got hungry all of a sudden. And, and so that kind of thing where we're not so rigid in some of our thinking, I think we're doing that far better than we ever have. Uh, and I'm super proud of, of that. And then I think also, uh, you know, just our our willingness to try to just meet needs of students wherever they are. And one thing, and that's just personal to me, which I, I think is the biggest issue with our society right now is we're not connected. Um, we are fake connected. We're digitally connected and it's all fake, it's not real. The, the real connections with people we don't have anymore, not nearly as much as we used to. We uh, remodeled Helper Junior High, the Helper Middle School, excuse me, last year that we finished, and part of the con deconstruction of the old building, the old main part of the original structure was torn down. And in the cornerstone of that building, we found a time capsule. And it was amazing, it was, it was amazing. And it had I should have counted, I have pictures of it. I bet there were 30 community clubs or groups that wrote letters, put their letterhead in their pins or their some kind of you know a membership token in the box. And there were women's groups and men's groups and card, you know, people who, groups who played cards or groups who were connected by their nationality or their religion or their interests or American Legion or you know military service or whatever. There are all kinds, all kinds, so many. And newspapers from the time that were put in the time capsule that talked about, you know, the women's um, group that got together and played cart bridge or something and talked about, it was the 1936 version of Facebook, but, and I just thought, we don't have hardly any of those anymore. We don't have, people don't get together like in person saying words to each other without the distraction of the technology anymore. And that's a shame and it's hurting us, I think, profoundly hurting us. I don't think we know the effects yet. 
But because of that, school must provide opportunity. So we provide sports, we provide extracurricular clubs and groups and organizations and things to get kids together, get them around a table. We are met with some criticism by not allowing cell phones in our classrooms and there are parents who are very angry with us about that and students who are angry, but really it's just, you're on your phone all the time. Give us this time. Let's, let's set it aside and let's really get together as people, as humans, and make a connection. And I think that's one of the most important things we can do in school. Of course, I'm going to say math is important. Reading is critical. Of course it is. All of the subjects are. But gosh, if we don't have a connection, I don't think we have anything. I, I don't think it matters what you know if you can't interact with human beings and, and just connect with them and care about them and think about them as you're making decisions. So I would argue that is also one of the most critical things we've done. Adding in different, so it's not just about sports anymore. I was an athlete in school, and so I was perfectly fine that sports got all the attention because I really didn't have other interests really. I didn't, I wasn't in the marching band. I didn't, I didn't do debate. I, I didn't, wasn't in like an art, you know, uh, realm in our school. I didn't, I didn't do any of that. So I was perfectly fine if sports got all the attention, but as a principal and as a teacher, I just thought, oh my goodness, what are we doing for the non-athletes? We've got to provide everybody, every, every student ought to be connected to something. No matter what it is, they should, not just school, they've got to be connected to an outside school, group, club, team, uh, something. I think that's as important. I agree. I really appreciate your thorough answers. Thank you for going through all of that. <laughs> really interesting and inspiring to hear how much progress has been made with so many of these things and I'm really glad to hear that you don't allow cell phones in classrooms I think that's critical and yeah it's so unfortunate that parents would be upset about that and try to push back because I feel like even for adults if you can't figure out a good way to regulate your own cell phone technology usage it's gonna get the best of you I think yeah. we've all experienced that we kind of hit, you know, it snuck up on us. Nobody really knew in our generation just starting to grow up with these tools, how it was going to affect us. And I think lately everybody's starting to realize, like, if, if we don't consciously control our, our interaction with these things, that they could do some, some serious damage cognitively just to our ability to focus and do deep work. That's what I found personally. Uh, so... In my own life, I have worked really hard to try to like regulate my use of these things and screen time. And I think if we don't intervene and help young people to, to do the same and we just let them run with it and you know be on their phones as much as they want to be, I think we're failing them. And I think they will be pretty angry with us when they get older and realize what kind of damage it did to, to them and their, their cognitive abilities, their focus and attention. So uh, fully support that. Really happy to hear that is the case. Well, I have to kind of do a caveat to that. We don't allow cell phone use in class. Right. We cannot prohibit them walking in with it. Uh -huh. It's their personal property. So it's, it's a balance we find, uh, trying to find all the time, where there are fines if you're using your cell phone during class when you're not allowed to. And... It's, so I, I, sh I need to just clarify, we, we don't 
not allow them I would I would personally really love to but it's just not possible yeah and and we're not searching kids and we're not putting our hands in our pockets that's not what we're going to do so I just want to clarify mm-hmm. a little bit yeah makes sense yeah okay so let's talk about current ongoing problems and challenges and I want to start <laughs> with like the elephant in the room um, so Carbon County is highly affected by poverty you'd said that in this recent meeting I was at that after San Juan County which ranks number one Carbon County ranks number two in the state for intergenerational poverty, which is defined as poverty that has persisted across four generations. That's a really sad and sobering statistic. I guess, you know, in any state, there's always going to be some county that has to be number one and number two. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I didn't realize that, that it was us until you said that. So it was also said by someone at this meeting that quote, kids can't read a book and run from a lion at the same time. So what are the effects of poverty and how is it manifesting in schools? And what are the lions that are being referred to in, in this metaphor? So the, uh, it's true. We, we have an abnormally high uh, poverty rate and it is true that we are second in the state for intergenerational poverty. And the um, they're basically... Uh, the, the four generations of poverty, four generations of families on assistance and, and living in poverty does designate that for, um, for one state uh, definition of what that looks like. So we are we're in trouble here. We have some we have some things to work on, and I do want to separate a bit. So I was a kid, right? I was I was I lived in poverty my whole life, and I do. I want to be careful. I want to be sensitive to families and anybody out there who's listening because I don't want to make it seem like people are being judged because they fell on hard times. That's that's not at all what the school district, you know, it's what we do. We're just trying to we're just trying to help the kids. So, but we do have to just there's some things. There are some things that are that kids face when they live in poverty and there's just no getting around it. And I faced it and it sounds like you faced it and there's just some things that some norms that and some expectations that people who live in poverty have to overcome if they're going to change from living in poverty to living in what would be called middle or middle class. There's a, a book that I would encourage everyone in our community to read, The Pover- uh, Bridges from Poverty, Bridges Out of Poverty, and it talks about some of this. And uh, and we as educators must just face it. There are problems inherent. In students living in poverty but also Carbon County faces a second crisis which is our opioid over uh, opioid addiction rate and our drug use and abuse and there's just no getting around that either I think it would be hard for anyone who's lived in Carbon County to to find anyone who has lived in Carbon County that hasn't been had their family directly impacted by drug use it's everywhere. It's in every house, whether directly or one one level out from that immediate family. Somebody that um, has been negatively affected by drug use here. We see that. We see that in our school system all the time. We see kids who have either been born addicted to something. Uh, we don't know what it is, but it's it's obvious that there's something going on that's impeding learning 
uh, or impeding behavior, which then impedes learning. And we just have to address it. We just have to acknowledge that there's a problem. And the the uh, quote that you talked about that you know you can't read while you're running from a lion comes from our trauma training. So um, there's a, a great YouTube video uh, called Paper Tigers, and I would encourage anyone to go watch the watch the video. And and what it talks about is that students who live in acute trauma are their, their brain chemistry is different, right? Their cortisol levels are, are different. They're, they're always under that stress. Um, they're always, they're never, their bodies are never allowed to regulate and, um, and uh, basically have those chemicals leave. So back in time when humans were you know, just developing, and we did not have the comforts we have now. And you saw a tiger. There were there are certain things that happen in our bodies: the fight, flight, or flee, that we are that are instinctual for us. And even though we don't live in the jungle here anymore, where the evolution hasn't caught up to that, right? So we're still hardwired, just as our ancestors were. And so when we see danger. When we perceive danger, there's chemical things that happen to us. Um, and kids who live in trauma, now uh, there's some comorbidity there. There was a lot of drug use is comorbid or connected with poverty. So it's not just poverty, uh, but it is, it is especially for students who have maybe both things going on or some sort of family destruction that is negatively impacting them. And if they perceive danger, their bodies react. The, those chemicals are released. And they stay with those kids. So just because they come to school at 7 in the morning doesn't mean that those chemicals are gone. They're still in their body. And so, they're, so we are really kind of trying to help these kids all day and trying to teach them things uh, we want them to read, we want them to do math, try this science experiment, tell me how you feel about this political thing, or, you know, what, uh, I shouldn't say that, political, but I mean like a, a social uh, current event, you know, how do you feel about about this thing that's happening, what's your, what's your interpretation of the Great Depression, look at it from an economical standpoint, look at these things we're expecting them to do, and they are not ready for that, because they're just in fight or flight still. So the reason he said that is because in the in the in the training that we've had with trauma, we realized that until you can bring those levels down and take kids out of the fight, flight, or flee, and reduce some of those um, chemicals in their brain and just get them into a place where they know they're safe, they know they can be calm, uh, they're not threatened at all in this environment, physically threatened, then you you can learn once you get there. So we had trauma training last year. Uh, we had Dr. Ben Springer come in and help our staff understand. He talked about things like turning down the lights just a little bit, that the glare from the lights for students who are just on edge, that are, just, that are, that are struggling with this, or living in that acute trauma, the lights could be enough to just like set them off. They, they can't take it, it's too much. They're already on sensory overload and then you put them in this brightly lit, like fake artificial light and not good for them they if you just dial it down a little bit turn one panel off it will just do so much to help them and things like describing to students what's about to happen 
uh, particularly if the room is going to be loud. Uh, okay, we're going to do this activity. You're going to have time to, you know, uh, roam about the cabin, so to speak. You're going to be working in these groups, and then I'm going to give you a signal, and then we're going to come back to being to work quietly. And if you just by telling them what's about to happen, it helps so much because they might be living in a place where there is no control and there is no uh, warning about what's about to happen. And so just little things like that that we can do that we're practicing as educators to understand, first of all, how many of our students are coming to us with this acute trauma. And then learning how to do some things that will make the classroom and the school just a little bit better so that they can come into a calm place. So that's a challenge. Also, when there's students who are, and we, we have a challenge, is that we are seeing more behavior issues than uh, I would say we've ever seen. It used to be that the extreme behavior was reserved for the high school students. And then we started seeing it in middle school, junior high, and then it's kind of trickling down. And we're seeing extremely um, loud, violent, vulgar uh, behavior uh, all the way through now. And it's, and it's not everywhere all the time, but it is definitely um, in every school. And it is quite often in some classrooms. And so, again, when you have a student who is going through this acute trauma and there's someone screaming and swearing and throwing things and um, incessantly um, combated with the teacher, it affects all of the kids. It, it's not just the one student that we're trying to wrangle in. It's, it's really everyone can be negatively affected by that, particularly those who are already in that kind of acute trauma state. So that's a huge challenge for us. It's a huge challenge for us. And then honestly, you know, we do have a, a, a challenge with um, really uh, back in the day, you know, you if, if, if a parent was called, there was an issue at school, the parent would say, I will take care of this. I will talk to my child at home. I This will not happen again. And now it's not always that way. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to work with parents and let them know. And very often we face a lot of scrutiny from parents when we call to report a problem. Um, and I, that's not a secret either. Anyone who has Facebook will see. There are a lot of criticisms. We've had parents go to the news rather than call us or they call us, they don't like the answer and they'll go to the news. They'll go to Facebook or other social media. And, and it's really unfortunate because uh, the assumption I think with some people is that we don't care, I guess, about students or we're not trying our best to, to help them and that's just not fair. And uh, I would really love and encourage parents to just really stay at the school with the school problems, you know, let us help us. We, we want to work this out too. We, we, we really are concerned about the child that's misbehaving and everyone around them. We really are. And we really want to find solutions. And so I would, that's another challenge though, is just, is that. And then I think another challenge that we face in our community is, um, the, uh, the inavailability of foster or kinship placement. We have kids who are taken out of their homes who really there's not a place for them to go. And so sometimes kids have to leave the area to be placed in foster care. Um, and, and 
I think I think if we could have more places for them to be, it would be helpful, especially if sibling groups could stay together. Yeah. Um, I want to talk more about food because okay. I feel like this is a a big part of it, uh, and like you said, just touching on the the fact that there's a lot of growing children and teenagers who have a variety of dietary needs and caloric requirements. You know, you think about uh, a 15 year old boy going through puberty and he's growing six inches in a year and gaining 50 pounds. He may need three or 4,000 calories a day. And so it can be very different from another person in the same classroom who is not maybe hitting puberty yet or is, is, a, is a girl. So, yeah, I just want to know in general, um, you know, do you feel like school, school lunch and the food that's provided in, in school is adequate? Um, and, and I'd asked you about this previously, so I know that it's connected to the fact that the way the school lunches are funded, I believe it's through the federal government. You don't really have a lot of uh, flexibility with how you implement the school lunch program. But in your opinion, you know, is what's provided adequate? You, you said that we now have uh, school pantry or food pantries in a number of the schools. I'd like to know more about that. How did that start and how does that work? Where does the, the food come from? And what more would you like to see happen or, or change if, I mean, if you had a magic wand and could just, you know, do whatever you wanted, um, for example, uh, and I, I think you'd said that there is some kind of snack option for breakfast for students that want that, but um, would a more like official school breakfast be helpful? Uh, so just tell us about, about the food and nutrition situation. So I guess the, the, the pantry, <clears throat> excuse me, part I'll answer first. The uh, school pantries are just provided with donations, or we just purchase items to put there out of our general funds. Uh, so if, and we'll get to this later, but as the community maybe wants to help out with things, we can accept donations for snack-type foods in our schools for their, for their pantries, uh, but they have to be individually wrapped and uh, non-perishable a lot of times, you know, or at least some sort of reasonable life on a shelf we can't store or we don't have refrigeration uh, in those pantries so things like that they'd have to be able to be put on a on a shelf to be to give to the kids but that's separate Pan food pantries are not part of the child nutrition program food pantries are just a, a storage uh, that schools have that we have things like granola bars applesauce uh, tuna fish packets just those types of things that we can hand to a student um, that they can eat on their own. And so that's separate. That's outside of school nutrition. Uh, so yes, the federal funds that we accept uh, run, pay for our entire food nutrition program. And uh, we accept those funds because we feel like we have to in our area. Once we receive those federal funds, we also accept a federal subsidy. So all of our lunches, our breakfast and lunches are subsidized meaning even if you're full pay, you don't pay what it costs. It's subsidized by the federal government. So then we have free, free lunch and reduced lunch based on income. But because we have such a high free and reduced lunch rate, uh, which is how the 
federal school funds gauge your poverty level, um, with which falls under Title One. That's Title One's uh, title program, which helps um, offset extra costs for school districts that are high poverty, just help to provide some more support for them. Uh, again, separate from school lunch. School lunch is its own federal program. But when you accept federal funds, you accept federal guidelines with them. We do have full breakfast and full lunch at every school. Uh, two of our schools are above 90% poverty, therefore they uh, receive free breakfast and lunch and that will be for the next four years. We also have the, we have high enough poverty in our area where each elementary school has been uh, awarded the fruits and vegetable program. So a couple of times a week, every student in every elementary will, will be provided fresh fruit or vegetables just to try to get them to really be exposed to that kind of food. So I, it's, it's hard for me to, I have my personal feelings about this and I have my superintendent feelings about this. I. Um, we couldn't, we'd have a big problem in our area if we denied the federal subsidy. Uh, everybody, if we denied the federal subsidy and we got to have free reign over our own lunch and breakfast programs, we would have to fully pay for it. And by we, I mean our parents would have to pay for their kids' breakfast and lunch. And I don't believe that that would be successful, just given some of our challenges, uh, recouping fees that are, or costs for school lunch that are already overdue, um, we have a very hard time gathering those, uh, collecting those from families when they owe lunch money uh, for their students. So I do not believe that if we cooked our own food and had our own free reign on menu items that we would be able to feed the same number of kids we feed right now. There, I, just don't, I just don't think that's possible, not even close. Also, we wouldn't have the subsidy, so it would be probably, I don't even know what to guess. I would guess four times as much money at least to provide our own menu items. So I feel like we're in this catch-22. We're able to offer breakfast and lunch because of the federal subsidy, but we have to follow all of their rules. And in the rules, it specifically states what we can serve and how much we can serve. And the way we have to serve it and we have to follow those rules and we're audited on that and we're inspected on that and we can't budge from those rules. So I feel like the catch 22 is that if, if I got to pick the food and I, and again, I want to be very clear that I am not <laughs> saying anything negative about our food service workers, about our lunch child nutrition director, everyone is just working and with the best of what they are allowed to do. They are fantastic people who care deeply about these kids. And they, they watch these kids come through their lines every day and they are, they are wanting to give them the best that they possibly can. So it's nothing against that. It's the system that I have a problem with, not the workers. Our workers are fantastic human beings. Um, but like you said, if I had a magic wand, if I had a magic wand, we would be serving high protein, low carb, um, fresh foods at every meal to our kids. We would cook them 
uh, we wouldn't as much as possible we'd have almost no reheated or uh, you know uh, heated in plastic or anything like that I I really if I had a magic wand I would change all of it because I I think we should have high nutrition food for our kids at breakfast I would avoid and I wouldn't be very popular but I would take their sugary cereals out I would, I would not allow that. I would not allow strawberry milk. I would, you know, again, magic wand, and this is my own person talking, not my position, but I really do think it's it's important that kids have a healthy breakfast, and I think, you know, there could be some argument of what that looks like, but um, I think what happens is they eat a lot of sugar in the morning, and then they crash, right? They, they crash, and they're not full. They're hungry again immediately. When it's all sugars and carbs, it's it serves you for a minute, but a little while, but then you, you crash and you're immediately hungry again because you weren't getting nutrition out of it. You were getting pleasure out of it, but you weren't getting nutrition out of it, and, I, and it doesn't last. Also, for our secondary schools especially, like you said, one is the size of the kids. I mean, talk about variance. If you want to see variance, you go to a middle school or a high school. We have, when, when we brought the sixth graders to the middle school, we were previously junior high, seven, eight, nine, and now we're a six, eight middle school. And I was principal when that change was made, and I didn't think it'd be that big of a deal at first. But then, when when our ninth graders left and our sixth graders walked in the door, I couldn't believe the size difference. And in that three years, our kids grow, especially the boys, but the girls too. They grow so much, and what the federal government says is an okay portion for a student. I'm just gonna disagree in a lot of time, in a lot of cases because that not only big and they're growing and their bodies demand more calories, but they also stay at school forever. They come in the morning, they stay after for practice or for a game. It might be, you know, seven, eight, nine o'clock, sometimes later that they're getting home. So they've got to have a lunch that can sustain them through through that day. So I don't like the food we serve because of the system, not because of our people. But I wish, I wish we could change it. I really do. Um, I just don't. I. It'd take legislative changes. It would have to be funded partially, or I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do. Um, but I do think it impacts learning too, and and I think it impacts their just their well-being. And I don't like it. I don't like. I don't like that we're stuck in some ways. I don't. I feel like in education, public education, we have to serve a lot of masters. And it's for nutrition and it's for testing and it's for all kinds of things. And we have to serve our masters and we are not allowed to, to vary from some of that. So we just have to do something, even if we don't want to. But we have to take advantage of the leniency we get in other areas and do the best we can. So we'll serve in the lunch the way the federal government says we need to, but we'll offer a food pantry for those who are hungry. And that's kind of been our way to help the kids because we want to help the kids. So we do have to sometimes just do what we're supposed to do, uh, but then find ways to augment that. Yeah. Thank you for being so honest about all of that and, and also being careful to distinguish between your, your professional and personal opinions and to 
recognize that everyone involved in the school lunch program are all doing their best and I think he did a really good job of explaining all that. So just to be clear, the, the federal requirements dictate that you can't supplement school lunch with additional um, courses or you know servings of anything. But the food pantry is kind of a loophole where outside of the school lunch block and what's what's being served, they don't care if you if you give them extra food or snacks at any other time of day. Other time of day, that's the critical thing. You cannot compete with school lunch or breakfast. So we cannot offer the pantry items during lunch or breakfast. It has to be, you can't compete with federal school, uh, school lunch. Right, interesting. I'm just like brainstorming with you. Um, like I wonder if, for example, if we had the just community willpower to wanna you know, get some, like I've got a, an elderly neighbor who's a great cook and doesn't have any children or grandchildren left. And she cooks for me all the time. I think just because she wants to, it makes her feel good sure. to make food for other people. You know, if we, if we had a, like an army of volunteers who wanted to do something like that, um, would one possibility be say like a, like a second after school meal, um, that was optional for the kids who are staying to, to do their, their sports practices, because like you said, I mean, if lunch happens around noon and they get out at two, three o'clock, and then they've got a few hours of practice or more, like, especially for those growing kids, I feel like like a, you know, four meals a day is, is reasonable. Um, so would anything like that be possible? I think it would be possible. I, I would really not want to say no to anything unless, uh, until we thoroughly, like explored every possible way to do it. I, I think that person would be very popular with our athletes. Uh, if we did have an option where they could have a, even just a really nice snack. Like I'm even thinking, if it could be, you know, some sort of protein and then like cheese and crackers like with it or something. You know, some sort of salami cheese cracker, like something like that. Yeah. I think uh, our athletes would love that person who could give that to them. I'm also. Wondering if you know there was a way to partner up with some some businesses, for example. And I mean, there's a lot I don't know here. I'm just I'm just brainstorming. But like Smiths, I often will get their discounted foods that I assume are about to expire. And I I believe when that happens, if they haven't sold, they just toss them in the dumpster. And and whenever I pass the uh, the place where the heated cooked chickens are, I'll usually if there's one that's on sale for like three bucks, I'll buy it and and uh, you know, get my, my protein that way. And I mean, that's super affordable for a full cooked chicken, like $3, it's ready to eat. So just, you know, another example, I wonder if, you know, it were possible to partner with Smith's and say, hey, if you've got chicken that's about to go bad and it's got a one or two days left to sell it, would there be a way that we could just bring it over to the school and, you know, provide this like a KFC style, just like chicken buckets? Because I know that, as a student, I would have definitely taken advantage of something like that, grabbed a drumstick on my way to football practice. Do you think anything like that could, could work? I mean, I, I again, I don't want to say no to anything. I, I think it's possible maybe to do things like that. <coughs> Excuse me. I would be, uh, I would want opportunities to be consistent, I guess. That would be my biggest thing is yep. I would want there to be a reliable and consistent um, source. If we're going to do something, I'd want to make sure that it was 
not random and not um, just that that we could count on it. And and that's that's one thing as we as we get a little further, but into you know community support. Uh, I think that one of the most critical things we can do to try to really make a difference for students is consistently provide things for them. And so if it was just a, we didn't know when we could count on it, and also we couldn't put staff on it, because that's the other thing is who goes and picks that up? Who brings it? Uh, do they have a food handler's permit? Can we, can we offer it if I don't even know? Like there's, I don't know. We'd have to find out, because right now, like our food pantry, it, we couldn't do that. We'd have to have prepackaged, individually wrapped food. Also, where do they eat it? And do we have custodial staff that we could send over to clean up after that? You know, you, anyway, there's just some things. And I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying we would have to explore all of it. But I really would want to make sure it's consistent. I, I wouldn't want someone to count on that as their dinner and have it not show up one day. You know what I mean? Yep. That, that would be worse. Totally. Yeah, I'm just spitballing in, right. in yeah. hopes that uh, I yeah. could maybe plant some ideas in the minds of anyone listening and just just uh, suggest that you know we could get creative here yeah. that as long as you're saying that it's possible then I think with you know ingenuity and creativity like this this community could potentially rally and come up with some kind of a program and there's a community member who started a, a nonprofit organization called carbon caring for kids that gets volunteers to put together bags of food and snacks that get distributed to, to kids at schools. Thought that was really cool. We, we got to go check that out in person recently. So that, that was just you know another example like Carbon Caring for Kids, if they had enough support and funding, like I wonder how, what they could evolve to become because they seem pretty dedicated and consistent in their work. Oh, they are, they're amazing. I remember when that started and it was just unbelievable. I couldn't, I couldn't believe the quality and the quantity of the food that they brought to our schools and then I also couldn't believe that it has sustained this I, even when it first started I, I remember thinking oh I I we're going to have to figure out something to do when this ends you know because I just I did not foresee that it would go on for years and years I, I did not I thought this is wonderful what are we going to do when it goes away? You know, that was my first, maybe it's a pessimistic side of me, but I just think, I just watch these kids and I know they look forward to it and I know they count on it and and then I, I'm just so impressed that they've been able to sustain it for this many years. It's just been, it's been amazing. So yes, that's, I mean, we've proven that it's possible, right? We can send those home with kids that doesn't violate any kind of uh, lunch, thing, federal, issue or whatever so that would be my only thing is I would just want to make sure federally we don't we can't lose our lunch program at this time so I don't I won't be able to do anything that would uh, hurt that in any way but as long as it as long as there's no rules against whatever it is we come up with I think it would be fantastic and wildly popular we have a, a teacher uh, when I was at Helper Middle School who had uh, had a, some fruit trees and their family had some fruit trees, and uh, they he would always bring boxes of apples to school, and our kids devoured them. They just loved them. They looked forward to it. They knew it was coming, and they loved it. And I'm not saying it's just the students living in poverty or just students who are in hard hardships. Everybody likes a good apple, <laughs> you know. And I mean, 
I would eat them too. Like uh, he offered it to the staff. I mean, it, everyone just likes good food. You just do, and it's and it's nothing against anyone. It's just uh, I would love to provide something like that for for kids. So yeah, I think it'd be fantastic if we could figure out a way to make that happen for sure. Okay. This is kind of an aside, but I'm curious about vending machines. When I was in school, there were vending machines for soda and candy, and I imagine that you know, Coca-Cola and Nestle do, do all they can to make sure that they've got vending machines in every school, but I know this has been a fight over the years, and a lot of schools have tried to get rid of them. Are there? Do we have vending machines in our schools? We have vending machines, but we have a lot of rules we have to follow with vending machines. And if you'll notice, when you're walking down the hall in our schools, there are vending machines, but they're not... Uh, what we were accustomed to in school. They're flavored water that has to be under a certain sugar content. There's just, there's rules now. So there are vending machines, but we have to, we're regulated with what we can put in them. Good, good to hear. Okay, so is there, with your magic wand, any uh, education bills or laws that you would like to see pass, either at a federal or state level? And also I'm curious if, um, I mean, can anything be done to address the, the nutrition problem uh, at a state level? You know, because I've just I've followed this a little bit over the years and I've been aware that there have been attempts to increase funding for school lunches through these programs, I think, and, and but a lot of pushback, people that fight against it. And one common argument I hear is that, well, that's not the job of the government, it's not the job of public schools, this should be Get being taken care of in the home by the family. And I find that to be just such a frustrating argument because it's like, well, that's great. Ideally, that would be wonderful if families were, were so strong and could like take care of all their children's needs. But like, why are we sticking our heads in the sand? Like, obviously that's not the case. So how can we tell children that they're just out of luck? I mean, we're talking about little kids who were setting up to fail right out of the gate. And, you know, if they have nutritional deficiencies starting from when they're five years old, they're maybe never going to catch up to their peers in terms of their, their cognitive abilities and, and their learning. So, I don't know, personally, I feel like I, I'd like to see more, more done by, by the government. And, um, but yeah, so whether, whether having to do with food or, or anything else, you know, my other question, uh, as far as uh, legislation goes, I'm wondering, are, are our, our teachers being paid, compensated adequately? So if, is there anything that, that you'd like to see happen? Uh, I think as far as um, the food part goes, I think if, if we could, I would be fine if they would um, allow us to present a plan to them. Like, if, if we could say, okay, we'll accept the subsidy or we'll accept your money, but if there was some lenience in, the, in um, uh, our, so, so we call it in education, like what we, when we set up parameters for schools, we have some things that are tight and some things that are loose. You will have these parameters. These are tight. We're not going to give on these. These are, these are absolutes. You must have X, Y, and Z. Now, how you do that is up to you. That part's loose because not every school is the same. Everybody has different grades they're trying to deal with. So what would work in a kindergarten classroom is not going to work in eighth grade. So everybody must have like a three-tiered behavior plan. Every school must have a three-tiered behavior plan. But how they set that up has to be up to the school. Um, 
what works in one school would not work in other schools. You have to allow flexibility there. So I would like to see the, the food service program, federal, federal food service say, all right, you get X amount of dollars at your district for your district for school lunch. Um, but you present your plan to us. Like we should, I wished we had a way to say, okay, here's how we would rather um, use the money or this is the menu items we would like to have. And then as long as we were doing good faith and, and trying to provide the best for our students, and of course where you live matters, you know, we're living at elevation and we have seasons, like we're not going to have some fruit available all year or we're not, you know, whatever. We, we don't have a way to provide fresh fish. We don't, we're not on the coast. So I think each region would have its own limitations and resources, but it would be great to be able to say, okay, we would like to propose this plan. And then of course, if it's their money and that was really our money, but if, if they're providing us the money, um, I could see where they'd want some oversight, but ideally it would be great for us to say, this is how we intend to do it. And this is why, and then be granted that. I think that would be a huge change if, if some of the restrictions were taken off uh, and then, but still maybe you have to, you have to have this many calories or whatever. Okay, great. Let us tell, pick the menu items for that, but we'll stay within your parameters. Some things tight, some things loose. I think that would be great. Uh, salary and those kinds of things are are um, obviously important. And we have we don't want our teachers to uh, qualify to. If you're a teacher, uh, we hope you don't qualify for free lunch, right? We hope your salary is enough that you're not living in poverty. Uh, your profession, you're a professional, you're, you're required to have at least a bachelor's degree experience. It's a tough job. We'd hope that they could make enough, obviously, to, you know, stay on that. And that hasn't always been true. Our teachers are often on the list for free and reduced lunch because salaries were so low for so long. So I think there's a balance. Um, I think that uh, when you look at salary, there's a lot to look at. You also have to look at benefits. You also have to look at the schedule and the days of work per year. And... Um, my daughter just went into education. I was happy that she did. I'm proud of her. She's an amazing teacher, and I didn't try to interfere with that. I think it's a wonderful profession. And her salary now, starting this year, is a lot more respectable. My first teaching salary was $19,000. You know, of course, it was a long time ago, but still, it's uh, we've come a long way with salary. But it's not just about salary either, and I think we could – do we want to pay our teachers more? Of course we do. I would love to, I would love to be, you know, on a trajectory with other professionals, but I also don't think that's necessarily not the case. As I look, as my kids are older and starting to decide what they want to do for a living and explore careers, our beginning teacher salary for 183 days of work is actually quite comparable to other professions particularly when you look at the work schedule and the days uh, um, you know, required to work in a, in a whole calendar year. So by the hour, uh, we're actually doing pretty well, especially compared to years past. So I do not want to have every teacher mad at me that I've said they make enough. I didn't say that. I'm just saying comparably, I think we are making big steps in that direction and have uh and recently, this last year, we gave a 14% raise. It was a huge raise. It was, um, we, whenever possible, we do try to 
uh, do everything we can to make sure teachers are compensated fairly. But having said that, like I said, it's not all about salary. Um, people will uh, do really crummy jobs for really crummy wages if they love their work and if they feel like they're making a difference. I'm not encouraging employers to pay crummy wages, but I am. I think all of us are challenged as employers to create an environment that is full of um, uh, satisfaction and knowing you're making a difference. If people know they're making a difference, they can see that difference. They'll come back over and over. So it's both. It's providing a wage that people can actually have a, a really comfortable life but also providing them an environment where they feel and they know they know that they're making a difference and they're doing something positive. And that's, I think, the challenge right now in education because educators face a lot of scrutiny from parents and from the community and uh, honestly from some students. And so sometimes we're losing the... Um, we're losing that other side. Even if we offer higher wage, we have teachers who are frustrated right now because of the behaviors that we're seeing, because of the challenges we're seeing. In fact, our PD day, our professional development day in January, we're having, again, Dr. Bryn Springer come back to deal with secondhand trauma for us. Now they're looking at, he's helping us with, what do you do as a staff for yourself? Because you see these kids come in and we're sitting at between 15 and 60%, some schools higher of these just students who live in really tough situations and it's it's hard it's hard to help every day all day and know about the hardships they face at home and just put a happy face on every day and do it over and over and over again especially when you're being scrutinized by people it's hard and so it doesn't matter what we pay them we could pay them a lot of money and if they're not feeling satisfied they won't stay with us so it's there's that whole element of it too. Uh, I I feel like um, what's happened in the past few years has been really detrimental to education. Attendance is another is a whole other issue. So schools, teachers, and us were all held accountable for student learning. Our test scores are published. That we they get you know they're graded. There's newspaper articles written and and a lot of advertisement um, are out there about how successful our schools are but we can only teach kids who come to school and we can only teach them when they're able to learn so we've made a ton of effort like I said in getting them first of all to a place where they can learn as they've come in the door but also if they're not there we can't teach them but in recent years even though there's still compulsory attendance law there's not a lot of follow-through outside of the schools so we lost all of our court backings we used to be able to turn kids in for truancy and uh, the court system would help us and court order parents to make their kids go to school. That is no longer the case. Hasn't been for several years. So now if the judge doesn't tell you that you have to send your kids to school, you're not sending them to school sometimes. So our habitual offenders with attendance have been awful. It's been a, it's been a huge detrimental impact. Also the restorative practices. So not just juvenile court, our entire our entire system, but with restorative practices, it feels like there's not a lot of accountability for illegal behavior. So um, it's difficult when students commit crime at school, we're just not able to do what we were able to do before. There's 
some accountability, but nothing like there was in, in years past. So, um, in fact, there was a lot passed just this last year where if a student commits a crime, if an adult student commits a crime at a school, as long as they're enrolled as a student, that will always be tried as a juvenile, no matter the crime. And, and it's just those things are difficult to deal with because we're still forced to deal with them. So that would be another thing. I would, if I had a magic wand, I would want every education bill, every bill that is tied to education, a requirement that they had to screen that through people in education first to even see if it was possible to do. Uh, or, or understand the effects of it and at least consider that before it was passed into law. That would be, that would be helpful because now we had 139 or something education bills passed last year. Can't keep up with that. And then just as many the year before, there'll be just as many this coming year. House Bill 61 this year, um, Representative Wilcox's bill, that um, last year uh, it was it was um, uh, it was denied. But it, last year he had written that every school is required to have an SRO, so a school resource officer, armed post-certified officer in every school. Well, there was no fiscal note attached to it. So we were just going to have to be required to do it, but not have any means to pay for it. Well, we have nine schools. So each employee, each full-time benefited employee costs us anywhere from 75,000 to $100,000 a year. So that's almost a million dollars just for us and we're small. How does Alpine, Nebo, Granite, you know, these big districts, how do they do that? And it, there was no fiscal note. So that was shot down mostly by the, primarily by the Sheriff's Association that just said, we don't have the cops to do that. We're short crew as it is. Well, this year the amendment says that you must have an SRO. And if you can't have an SRO, then you must find an employee with a concealed carry permit and pay them a $500 stipend to be your school armed security officer. Well, <laughs> personally, I don't, I don't see how that's possible. I don't think we have staff who would be willing to do that, certainly not full time. And I can't, we can't change their role to be an armed guard at the building. I don't, ha I don't have enough people to even do that, even if we wanted to. If you can't do that, the third option requirement, really, if this passes, is that they're going to accept volunteers from the community with concealed carry permits to be your security guards. They're called guardians. And I am extremely reluctant to look at that. I, I'm concerned about that. Um, I don't know how we manage that, how we supervise that. If something bad were to happen, is that liability on us? Is I just don't know. So it's bills like that that I wish were screened first. I wish there was a panel of educators that could really say, you know what, I understand you want schools to be safe, so do we but this isn't the way to go about it. So that would be a magic wand. Just run it past us. Just let us at least give you some feedback first before you make it law. Yeah. It's 1.30. Do you have time for a few more? I do. do I'm sorry. I'm, I'm taking too long to answer. No, but. no. This is great. I want you to take as much time no, as I'm you good. want. No, I'm good. Yes, I'm good. That's why I'm doing this. I want to go deep. Okay, so just a few more questions then. Let's see. I'd like to know if there are any ways that community members that would like to get involved and volunteer uh, to, to contribute somehow, if there's anything that they can do. Uh, th this meeting recently, you'd said that during COVID, kids were ha kind of falling behind with their, their reading, and 
so you put out a call for volunteers to come in and just read with kids and that was really helpful what are what ways can people come in to volunteer now and who should they talk to if they want to do that you know I would encourage anyone who's willing uh, to just call their local neighborhood school or whichever school they prefer uh, so if you want to help the neighborhood school where your kids go or, or went uh, I would encourage them to call whatever school that they would like to help with because every school has their own unique needs and um, I don't want to you know say a school needs a certain thing and then have it really not be true so I would encourage anyone to reach out to the principal and just say look I have this many hours a week I would love to help or I have this skill that I would like to offer or I have you know whatever I, I have I would like to give you a case of granola bars twice a year or whatever I'm just you know whatever it is uh, to reach out I, I think that would be fantastic and then that principal can really kind of work that volunteer into the uh, into the schedule everybody who's going to be in a school as a volunteer needs to have a background check so we require that and that has to be cleared before they're allowed to go in the school so just want to throw that out there that's free of charge we pay for those but we will not have volunteers who can't pass the VCI background check. So um, that, that would be something they would need to consider, you know, if they want to volunteer. Um, but yeah, I would, I would encourage them to just reach out to the school or the, especially about the age group, because everybody prefers different age kids, you know, and I would just encourage them to reach out. Okay. Returning to this, quote, this thing you'd said at this recent meeting, uh, you were saying that in retrospect, usually the most impactful formative experiences in a person's life are conversations. So I want to know what conversations can we all have to positively impact the lives of young people? So um, I, during that presentation, um, I, I did talk to everybody about you know the importance of like everybody can be an educator and a leader in their own way you don't have to go to formal school and you know get a teaching job per se I think we're all in the uh, we all have opportunities to help others and, and have them recognize their own strengths so I think there are two things that we can all do uh, to help those conversations and one like we talked about is to be specific with people so I was at a really great training, one of the best trainings I was ever in, and the, the trainer talked about giving praise well and in a meaningful way. And he said, if your child comes to you after having colored a picture with crayons and hands it to you, and you said, oh, this is great, this is wonderful, and you hang it on the fridge, uh, that is very good. You know, that is a nice thing and their work is on the refrigerator and everyone can see it and that that child will feel good about giving you that colored picture but instead if your child brings you the colored picture with crayons and you sit down with them and you say oh my gosh look at this this reminds me of when we went on vacation do you remember that tree we saw do you remember that waterfall do you remember when we sat there and ate those sandwiches that's what this reminds me of. I will keep this because it reminds me of that trip we took. That's totally different praise. It's not just good job. It's this is what you just did that made me feel better or that I now have this whole other wonderful feeling because of what you did. That is powerful. Not that the good jobs 
I don't want people to you know, stop doing that. But I think if we can have specificity in our praise, that it it's totally different. The other second thing along that is it must be sincere. We can't do platitudes. People see right through it. It's not it's not real and it's not helpful. So I think it's better not to say anything than say something that's not true. So sincerity and specificity. And I think that those two things uh, can make a difference for everyone. And then, of course, in that specificity and sincerity, we're pointing out their strength. Um, I do think that for most people, they don't, they don't see their own strength as easily as they see it in others. And so pointing it out to someone is very impactful as well. And I think staying away from things they can't control. Like, oh, you're so cute. You're so tall. You're so whatever. Like, I can't control that. Like, praising me for something that, you know, whatever. But saying, you care about people. You have integrity. You're honest. You're, you have leadership qualities. And this, these are what they are. That is also powerful because I can control that. I can make that better. I can hone that skill. I can't be cuter. I can't be taller. I can't be whatever. Like, I, I think we need to stay away from things that aren't, pe that people aren't control of and focus on what they are. So that's what I would say that people can do today for free. My last question is kind of a two-parter. I just want to talk to you a little bit about the future of education, what you see coming on the horizon, what changes are ahead, and what you feel we may need to be adapting to in the coming years. I think so one thing I wanted to ask about is a big one, and I don't know how much this is on your radar yet, but a lot of people out there are starting to talk about artificial intelligence and how this is going to just kind of completely transform our whole way of life um, in every sector and field in the coming years. could be five years, 10, 20 years, but um, it's going to be huge. And in university, it's already impacting uh, how, how students are doing their work, writing papers, how instructors are grading. So has this hit your school district yet or and uh if not do you see it uh coming and is it going to be do you think more of an opportunity more of a, a challenge how how do you uh see this affecting the work of students and educators and how how should we adapt yeah I, we are seeing it already uh particularly in the secondary setting i don't know that we're seeing it as much in elementary i don't know that they're we haven't seen it. They're probably familiar with it or whatever, but they we're not seeing it. But we are seeing it in secondary, particularly in uh, writing classes, uh, English classes, or anywhere they're to turn in a paper or an essay or a, any sort of report on something. It's we we have seen, uh, or we know they're using it. Uh, it's hard to tell whether they use it or not, but we know that they are. So I think uh, whether it's good or bad, I think, is is really up to the user. It's like all technology. It's great until it's not, you know, or it's great in this fat aspect but horrible in this one. And I think that's true for almost everything. I mean, we could say the same thing about our cars, you know, anything. It's, it's good and bad. And I think for educators, what we can do is, again, going back to that connection um, and really trying to – okay, so you wrote the paper, or maybe you didn't, maybe AI wrote it, but what do you think about it? What's your opinion about it? How, how, what spoke to you in this passage? Did, you know, did something impact you emotionally? 
you can't AI that, you know. So it's I feel like okay, the paper fine, but but we've got to we've got to step beyond that and really get back to listening and answering questions um, and comparing things to each other and 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 really doing that better. But I will say that we have seen a huge difference in that over the last few years. Just the idea of brainstorming and asking kids for their opinions. Um, they don't have them <laughs> a lot of the time. Or they don't know what you mean when you're asking them to provide an opinion and back it up with, with facts. So first of all, it's hard for uh, teachers to compete because the phone has been you know, it's a, it's an algorithm. It's, it's a, it's written in a code for you to be drawn to it and stay there. We've all scrolled and realized three hours have passed and we've lost that three hours because we were just in the app or whatever. We've all done it. Uh, but because of that and because of the, in, you can scroll through thousands of things in three hours. So then they come to class and it's not like that. They get, they get, maybe bored or they're just not used to that environment or they want they want the feed all the time and they don't have to work for it on their phone and then you're asking them to work for it in class and there's just this disconnect so I would still argue that it's necessary to have the class with opinions and kids talking about things interacting with each other um, but we are seeing a couple of things with that so one the brainstorming is very difficult so on your phone you're not shown two sides of anything. You're, the, the patterns in the, the newsreels you see and the any information you get has been customized for you based on you know your last searches or your last likes or whatever. It's all, it's all algorithmically programmed to, to show you. So they're not seeing the other side of whatever, no matter what it is. They're not seeing two or three or four sides of a topic. They're seeing one. So when you when they come to class and you say well, what about this other side, um, they not they don't necessarily know what you even mean by that. So that's been a challenge that we've seen. We've seen um, the other is this this culture that we've developed now, I guess, where if we disagree, then I hate you. I want you fired. I want you gone. I you know I. There's not a civil disagreement anymore. It's and and it's almost like you can't be friends unless you agree on certain things. And we're trying to get over that too in a classroom. Like, no, we can disagree. That's a healthy actually. You state your side, you state your side. We can probably find common ground if you're willing to. But sometimes I think we're not willing to anymore. It's not even we don't want to. We don't even try. And that brings up the, the poverty again. So in that Bridges Out of Poverty, they talk about this specifically in a classroom and they talk about how um, students who live in poverty are making fewer decisions every day than students who aren't. So for instance, you're getting ready for a barbecue. You're a middle class family, you're getting ready for a barbecue. So you go to the grocery store and you bring your kids with you and you're, you're asking your kids, well, what do you want? Well, I want those chips that we found at that, that one, you know, whatever, on vacation that time we had those. Can we get those? Yeah, okay, yes. Well, I don't want those. I want something. Well, that's okay. 
We need to buy two bags anyway, so you get the one you want and you get the one you want. Now let's go to get the hot dogs and hamburgers. What do you guys want? I want the hot dogs with cheese in it. And I want the, okay, you know what? I'll just get a pack of that and a pack of this. And these kids are giving their opinions and they're, they have experiences, experiences to draw from and they're throwing them out and they're, they're probably getting what they ask for a lot of the time. Someone like me who, and you maybe too, where there might not have been a lot of options for dinner sometimes or ever. Um, you had what you had, you were thankful for what you had, but you weren't like picking, <laughs> you know, you, there wasn't that decision to even make. Well, first of all, there wasn't a barbecue, but at all, but second of all, there, you, you weren't, you weren't offered a lot of, a lot of choice and there wasn't necessarily a vacation to refer to or a whatever and so so when they come to school and you say what's your opinion on this you know they might they might truly not know what you mean and, and so it's both it's it's the stuff we've talked about already but I do think the technology plays in heavily to that because they are our society right now is fed things we are not looking at a bunch of material and choosing or listening to both sides and finding a compromise. We don't do that as much anymore. So I would argue, along with AI, that's a huge issue for teachers. Yeah, for people of all ages too. People of all yeah. ages, employers, everybody. Yeah. And relationships anymore. Like if, if you're trying to, to find a, well even just making new friends or if you're trying to date or whatever, it's difficult. There's this divide with people right now. Yeah. Okay, last question. I just wanna take a few minutes to brainstorm again about the future and think creatively and innovatively about how should schools evolve. Um, I know you already have a lot of curriculum requirements that it's already challenging to do everything that you're supposed to do, but for, for one thing, I wonder are there additional classes or programs that you would like to see implemented at some point um, and in general like how should uh, just the the learning atmosphere and and style evolve so I've got a few just kind of ideas that I'll, I'll run past you first and this is based on just you know things I've heard that have happened at other schools um, so one is uh, I've heard of at least one one educator who had taken an upon himself to try to encourage more entrepreneurial uh, thinking and activity among his students. His theory was that they were old enough to start start figuring out how to build their own business, and I think maybe this was also in a like an impoverished area. So he was trying to teach the kids to help themselves and instead of waiting till they were 22 and had finished college like hey you're 16 years old like I mean we've already seen that eight eight-year-olds that are savvy with YouTube can make a profitable YouTube channel and become millionaires uh, so they've got all these these tools at their disposal and if they were empowered could they yeah be, be building their own businesses and getting more more involved taking charge in their local communities um, I wonder you know if you have any thoughts on that another thing I, I wonder about is at a number of schools they've got really robust uh, like 
community garden school gardening programs i wonder if we if we have anything like that here i know that there's a there's a greenhouse geodesic dome greenhouse down the street at one school there was another one here years ago that got taken down i think um, those, those always seem to be really valuable programs but i'm sure it just requires additional resources and personnel um, but yeah i wonder wonder in general like what are if anything is were possible, like what opportunities do you see? And and like you said, like every school is unique, and every every county and state is different. So, what are the unique opportunities for Carbon County? And um, again, this is to help plant seeds in the, the minds of anyone listening to to maybe get involved if they if they saw an opportunity or somewhere they could help. And uh, final thing is, you know, additional programs that might be missing, like, I don't know what all is available for extracurriculars, but like, you know, is, is there a, a forensics program for speech and debate that isn't, isn't present or, a, a, you know, shop home ec classes that have become kind of obsolete as a lot of schools have done away with those programs for whatever reason. Um, I've heard a few people locally say recently that you know, schools, the curriculum doesn't adequately prepare students for the real world. They're not teaching life skills. Like, schools should be teaching you how to, uh, you know, swap out a light fixture or change oil on a car. So, is, you know, an automotive program, is that, would that be helpful? Um, that's a lot of ideas and examples, but uh, that's just, you know, kind of part of what's uh, been on, on my mind, uh, too. So, what do you think? So yes, I mean, we have a lot of that already. What you what you mentioned, um, as far as uh, a lot of what you're talking about is in the CTE pathways. Uh, so the entrepreneurship, the um, trades, you know, the trade programs and training for students to be job ready. We have a ton of those already in in the high school. Uh, so I guess I'll just go through maybe some things of what you said. The um, we're, I don't know that we're actively promoting entrepreneurship. I, I don't think we're doing that. We have, we have the business pathways in the, in the high school, and, and we do have a, a work-based learning program where students are allowed to leave school earning credit still to go work and, and do externships and internships out in the community. And that's been highly successful in a lot of ways. Um, we do have certificate programs in our high school where students can earn industry recognized certificates. So for like kids like me, that, and probably you, that that's imperative. I could not have gone to school unless I was making more than minimum wage. It, I just, it wasn't going to be possible, but because I had a drafting background, I was able to get jobs that were like double minimum wage pay. And that allowed me to go. So even if they're not going to pursue that particular area as a career, it's a really good job to get them on a trajectory that they ultimately will be on, or they can have it as a career. But we have, we have uh, CompTIA certs, so that's a certain uh, technology certification. We have four certificate programs at Carbon High. You can get your um, oh ITF, but I'll not remember. Oh, geez, foundation, technology foundations, can't remember what it is all the way. Um, we have um, programming languages, Security Plus, Network Plus, four certificates that students can earn in high school that they can get jobs while they're in high school, especially virtually now. Our infrastructure in Carbon County is actually awesome. 
And so they can work virtually as 15-year-olds. As soon as they can pass the test, they take the class, they pass the test, and it's an extensive test. But we've had several students earn certifications that make them basically, you know, able to go get jobs anywhere and virtually too. It really opens up for nationwide. Um, we have our um, pathway programs through healthcare. We have post uh, pathway law enforcement where they can take classes through high school that will get them on the road to do something in in those areas. We have a great working relationship with USU Eastern. We do have automotive offered there. We have collision repair. We have welding, uh, CMA, GMA. I won't remember all of that, but all uh, cosmetology, nursing that can be started in high school. And it's $5 a credit hour for the college credits. That's what concurrent enrollment's all about. So we have kids who have 20 credit hours of college by the time they graduate high school. And I'm working with USU right now on an associate's pathway because right now it's not really possible through concurrent enrollment only to get your associate's degree before you graduate. We want to make that possible. So uh, a community garden, no, I don't, we don't have that. We do have greenhouses sporadically in some places, but that requires so much. The infrastructure, the water, the, the, the staff, especially through the summer to keep things going that we haven't, we haven't really done a large scale uh, thing like that. The other, as you talked about some of this, we, we, we have explored a lot of it. We have a horticulture class and they do bouquets and arrangements, but we can't compete with local business. So we can't use taxpayer dollars to create business that takes away from our local forest. So we have to be careful that our students have experiences and can make centerpieces and different things or Mother's Day gifts or whatever, but they've got to be within our own scope. So maybe they'll make centerpieces for a graduation or for a banquet, but we have to be careful that we're, because we don't, our labor is free, right? So we can undersell or we can uh, sell <laughs> cheaper than the local businesses and we can't do that that's not allowed so we just have to be careful with stuff like that but we definitely want to provide those opportunities um, but the trades the trades is something that as you look at any data nationwide statewide our trades are hurting they're saying some kind of crazy number but um, the uh, for every trade uh, worker that retires there's it it's like it's like a 10 to one or something that we're have 10 retire and one comes into the trade. So we're in trouble everywhere with the trades. Uh, but the trades are hard to prepare people for in as much as the, the a massive amount of infrastructure you need to get people ready. Like one of the, we've been working with USU to increase the trades. They can't find people who can come teach a construction class. Because anyone who could really come do it to prepare kids for a, for industry is working in industry and makes far more money than they could pay make at a college or university. So we're fortunate to have the welding program here. We have a, a nation nationally recognized welding program through USU, uh, but that's been rare because our those guys could also go make you know ten times the money somewhere else, uh, but they're choosing to be welding instructors here, which we're very thankful for, but that's not true for everything. Uh, so getting those electrical papers, plumbing, HVAC, um, masonry, all of those things, we, we would love to offer that. You can't find those people. They're not leaving their industry to come teach. We can't come close to their salaries. Um, 
but we need the training. So yeah, if, if there was a solution for that, that would be fantastic. Um, as far as extracurricular goes, we really do offer a lot of things uh, for the size that we are. So we're, we're a 3A classification under Utah High School Athletic Association, and we're a, we're a moderately sized 3A. So we're, some years we're one of the bigger 3A schools uh, with our enrollment. We have about 1,000 kids at Carbon High right now. But, so we're big enough to compete in a lot of things. We're big enough to offer a lot of experiences for our kids, but we're not quite big enough to compete with the bigs, the four and five and six A schools. So, uh, like we don't have lacrosse, we don't have rugby, we don't have some programs, but we do offer a lot for our students. At any given time, Carbon High might have nine extracurricular activities going at a time. So that includes sports. We have plenty of opportunities for boys and girls sports of all kinds all year. But we also do that. We do have a strong debate program, horse trip, uh, cheer and drill. We have our CTSOs. So we have our uh, like FFA or FBLA, FCCLA. So what you're saying like home ec and all of those. Well, we still have those programs. We don't call them home ec anymore. We call it family and career. Uh, but family consumer science, but uh, FCCLA is the CTSO of that organization. But we have those. We have pathways in nutrition. We have um, pathways in ag. So we we offer a bunch of opportunities for our students as much as we possibly can. And we're always looking at how to do that given the people we have. Uh, the licensing they have and what we're able to offer. But I do think for our size, especially our rural location, we I would put us against any other school our size. And that's really important. Like we're not going to compete with Lone Peak or Crimson Cliffs or we're not going to have as many programs as them. But we also don't have, you know, 3,000 students and 200 staff members. So I do, I'm proud of what we have for our size and for what we're, and for our community, what we're able to offer. Thank you so much for talking to me, Micah. This was a really great conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Sorry we went long. That was perfect. <laughs> okay.